Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is James Graham, screenwriter and playwright, creator of some of the best political dramas on stage and on screen of the last few years. Creator of This House and Labour of Love, which I was lucky enough to see uh, in the West End, and Brexit and Uncivil War, which is now available on Netflix. He's got a brilliant knack for turning contentious political moments into brilliant dramas. And I think... And certainly what's up my street, and I hope yours if you're listening to this, otherwise how else are you consuming this, um, making them fair and making them feel reasonable even when dealing with things like Brexit and people like Dominic Cummings who we talk about. Now, this was recorded just before Dominic Cummings sat on a trestle table in the garden and attempted to justify trips to Durham and Barnard Castle. We knew he was about to make a statement, we didn't know what was going to be in it. And obviously by the time you listen to this, more may have happened. Um, depending on how far into the near or distant future you're you're consuming this, so w- we knew that Cummings was in trouble. He hadn't yet made his statement, so that's that's uh, probably important to know because we do talk about Cummings at, at one point. But I was so um, pleased to meet James a, a couple of years ago because I loved his work, and I, this house was incredible. And I just thought it was amazing that a West End hit could be based on a minority government, the seventy four to seventy nine administration, and the machinations of it, the whips office, the the things you have to do to try and win votes. And I just thought it was great. You know, it wasn't about the miners' strike or Iraq or something like that. It was about this highly technical period in British political history. And I loved it. And it brought Parliament to life. And those of you that have seen it will know it was a really great representation of politics in that time. You can watch that play, actually, for free on the National Theatre's YouTube channel from tomorrow night. That's Thursday the 28th of May at 7pm. They're doing that during the lockdown as a treat for people and you can watch it after that for free anyway. So if you're listening to this after Thursday the 28th of May, it will still be there on the YouTube channel. And whether you've seen the play live or not, 
surely we've all got to watch it. It's great. I came out of that theatre buzzing that someone had made a play about politics and that it was so good. And then I found out not only is the play at my street, but so is James Graham. In fact, he grew up not too far from my street. He grew up in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire, having been born in 1982. I was born in 82, grew up in the inner city of Nottingham. And I think... And I think he's really and correctly careful about getting too much into his own politics. And I didn't want to ask him too much about that anyway. But I think we have a similar approach and a similar mindset. And I've never really reflected actually much on whether that had anything to do with growing up in Nottingham. Because I know my politics are shared by people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, But it just made me think a bit. So he is, as I'm sure you're aware, highly talented. This is a brilliant chat with such a... A gifted creative who can who can deliver these wonderful plays and films about harsh political times and make both sides enjoy them, and that uh, is a great skill as well as the skillers writing plays and films. Uh, I began by asking James what drawn him to politics for his subject matter. I actually. I struggled to remember what it was. Um, I don't think I was a, like, I, don't, I wasn't a hugely political kid growing up, um, but I grew up in a very politicized environment because it was, I grew up in um, Ashfield, which was a mining community in the 90s. So I, you know, I, I, it was obviously a very political situation to see people making decisions on telly, on the nine o'clock news, and that having consequences to the, to the literally how your town looks and how it got dismantled. So I guess that's part of it. Um, and just being really interested in how power works, like uh, given and the, given the impact on on my neighbours' lives. I just but also, I think it was history. I was a massive dweeb for history at school uh, because because storytelling. Because week week on week, I loved the feeling of, of going into class and learning how the story evolved and who would live and who would die and would the nations rise and fall. So I think it was politics accidentally came through just a sheer love of spending time in the past. You've focused on, so. I mean, with Brexit and things, big moments in, in, in recent history and created fantastic TV and, and theatre out of them. This house, which was the big political play that really announced you to the country and to the world, isn't necessarily the, the first place that someone writing a play for the West End about politics would necessarily look. The 74 to 79 era of minority government, confidence and supply, pairing and things like that. The nitty gritty of, of the whip's office. You know, it's not the miners' strike or, or something that, you know, when you explain your own background and how that's influenced your creativity. What drew you particularly to such a technical period in history? I think part of it is, is as you sort of identified, there's, there's a, I don't know, there's a slightly mischievousness to picking the, the most dull sounding <laughs> you could possibly find. And then the challenge of trying to make them accessible to a popular audience. But no, I don't agree with you. Like on paper, I mean, when I was pitching it to the National Theatre about eight years ago, you're essentially talking about, a, you know, a period of, you know, can I, can I put, can I take all the famous people out of the play put all the wits in the play that no one's ever heard of and basically dramatise a parliament that was so paralysed, nothing really happened. Um, and, but, of course, but of course, the joy of that parliament is that so much happened. It was, um, it was I, I think whenever you're trying to put an institution on stage and screen, obviously what, what, you, what you want to do is find it at its most stressed and strained. And I think that 74, 79 parliament was, was testing 
testing its its systems and its processes to to an extent that what comes out of it is naturally either tragedy or farce. So you have a huge farce of because as you as as you know very well because our system demands that you turn up, you physically have to turn up into that lobby to vote with your body, um, and when you have an old quite an old parliament uh, and the complete absence of peering. Um, you create those ludicrous scenes as people from the 70s will, will remember with ambulances turning up in New Palace Yard and if they can't physically walk through all the you know dozens of sick and dying MPs you have this convention of nodding through which is where a whip from both parties will come out peer into the ambulance and decide quite how alive or dead they are and if they if they if they're alive enough for their vote to count so you go, well, that sounds interesting and strange. And what about what is it about our, you know, very old, very medieval um, system of democracy that might be vulnerable enough to lead to such extremes? And also, I guess it, what it demands of you then as well is it doesn't become really about ideology. It becomes about people. It becomes about the flesh and blood and the feelings of, of, of members of parliament, which, which I've always tried to do in any, any work, try and remember that these are people, as, as unpopular as that is to sometimes say, these of course are people. I just thought it was such a great, as someone who's obsessed with politics and parliament, it felt like it was a play written for political dweebs, but it was hugely commercially successful. And I just thought that was so reassuring that you could do that, you could take that drama. And I agree with everything you said. And I find those things, as to the people who listen to this show and the people out there that love politics, do find those things brilliant. But culture sometimes tells you that actually, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a niche interest. No one's actually going to be bothered about pairing and, and the way parliament works. It's seen as stuffy and old. Like, one of the things that I think really comes across, and I'm not sure if this is true, that whatever you think of the individuals and the politics of it, you have a respect and a, a kind of love of Westminster in a way. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I think it's, I'm nervous about, saying that because I think we expect or demand of our, of our writers or our playwrights that they be understandably anti-establishment and that their job is to speak truth to power and hold these institutions and these people to account. But I don't, but I don't think that means you have to be so mercilessly uh, cynical that it renders any experience of watching a political play just ultimately so depressing and, and, and there's no hope. I, so yeah, you, you are faced with them um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I agree with you. I was, I was so relieved and thrilled that we could find an audience for, for a play where, where I think, you know, the, the midpoint in the interval uh, is, a, is a huge drama about whether or not an amendment to the aircraft and shipbuilding bill will go through. <laughs> and you just think, well, are people going to come back after they've had their ice cream? And I'm thrilled that they did, because I agree with you. I think people find the minutiae of it and the... Um, it's like a Swiss watch to open something up and to see how it works. I just think it's always the thrill of watching a drama about a real life place. Um, so yes, to, we, we, you know, we, there was a nervousness at first. It started off in the very smallest of the national theater spaces with about 400 seats um, and that sold out. And then we got to take it to the Olivier theater, uh, which is the biggest, biggest theater, 1000 seats. And, and that sold out and that was joy. And that, that's the show that we, um, we're, really, we're streaming this week on, on National Theatre Live. And then, yeah, the West End and the tours. And yeah, it, it really, um, it was very, very happy, happy making. Um, and I think also, as you say, it's, um, it's a period that just offered so many surprisingly warm stories where people behaved better than you would expect them to. And obviously it's being performed in London and elsewhere during a time when we did have a hung parliament. Mm. 
So I yeah. suppose in a way that that made it feel more relevant to a, an audience that might not necessarily have gone and watched a political play. I think that's true. And you, you, we forget now, don't we? But when, when I started writing this, I was writing it because hung parliaments were something of a novelty and a curiosity. Uh, you know, our system is designed to bring strong majority governments and it often mainly does. So when, the reason why I started writing was for, for exactly that reason. That, you know, there's a, great, there's a great tradition actually in theatre of making sense of the now by going back to a past equivalence. It's what Arthur Miller did very famously in The, in the Crucible. He wanted to talk about the 1950s McCarthy trials. Uh, so he went back to the, a, a, witch, a, lit, a literal witch hunt uh, in the form of the Salem witch trials. So, it's, um, so yes, when, when that outcome emerged in 2010, I think it was only a couple of days later, that I plucked up the courage to, uh, to go to the National Theatre and say, it, do you think there's a play in, in the Whip's office in the 1970s? And actually at that point, I didn't actually know the majority of the stories. I just knew it was a, it was a knife-edge parliament where votes were being won or lost by one or two votes every night. And I know that you, you met um, various politicians when you were creating the play and, and walking around Parliament and looking in the Whip's office and re- trying to sort of photograph it all and, and get the look of it right, which you absolutely did. At that stage, so before it becomes a hit, did you find that most politicians you're approaching were, were quite open and helpful? Eventually, yeah. <laughs> it took a bit of a while, and understandably so. As, as you all know, Matt, there's a huge code of silence with, with the whips. They just don't talk. Um, it's the dark arts, and they don't want you to know how it works. They don't want you to know all the tricks of the trade of how you might gently get uh, someone in your party to change their mind and, and vote with the government or against the government. And also, I, I, was, I was a completely unknown quantity. I think it would be, I, I don't say this immodestly, but I, 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 I think it would be a bit easier now, given that all the politicians came to, to see the play, um, that they would maybe trust speaking to me slightly more, given the sympathetic portrayal of, of some of these politicians. So yes, it took a while, but I, you know, the, the absolute, um, once, once one whip fell, they, they all started to fall. And I, and I, think, I think because the 1970s is far enough away, I feel um, safe to begin speaking about it, but close enough to feel relevant. It was, it was just sort of per- perfect timing, really. I have to say, without um, there's a character in the play, um, one of the only female characters in a very male, stale male parliament, uh, Anne Taylor, who would go on to become the very first chief female, female chief whip under Tony Blair. She was a young uh, junior whip in 1974 from Bolton. Um, in her early 20s, and she, that was such a great opportunity to put someone very unfamiliar into a, into a very, very macho environment. Once she very graciously agreed to, um, to speak to me, it all started to unfold um, from there, up until the point when Walter Harrison, who is the main, sort of the main character in the show, and a, 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 probably completely unknown, I think, to the general public, but an absolute legend in Westminster, you can't speak to many older generation politicians and they not immediately shiver when you mention that name as the most you know the epitome of the brutal whip who would throw people against the wall one second and then be a shoulder to cry on the next an extraordinary man he he was in his 90s when i met him and i spoke to him just before he died and uh to sit in his living room in wakefield and he'd get out his box of stuff um was just an absolute privilege that is so cool how? I remember he opened the box in the 70s, hit me in the face. <laughs> it, was, it was so joyful and um, it was very generous. I felt impossibly guilty, actually. So I remember the day, the day that he died uh, was, I think, a, uh, the, the two days after we just opened. 
And it was a bizarre meeting that, that as occasionally happens where art and life cross over, where they, they actually hideously, from my point of view, a lot of obituaries in newspaper papers put the photo of the actor playing him on stage at the time as his photo, not as a mistake, but just because they saw in that, I guess, some relevance to, to, to yeah. his, the timing of his death. But I remember having to write to his family and immediately apologise that, that uh, our portrayal of him was, was uh, in, infecting what is an extraordinary life, an extraordinary life, and then on, on its own terms should have been celebrated. How do you, when, you, when you're creating uh, the films or the plays, uh, well, and, and whether you should or not, keep your own politics out of it? They must be there. I can't pretend that in ways that is probably subconsciously, it must be in the very DNA of the stuff that, that I'm writing. But it's a conscious act. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen accidentally. You have to, at every stroke of the key, suppress what well, I do. Others don't, and that, that's also fine. That makes great theatre. That makes great comedy. People who are, are are activists and use their work as to be engines of change to try and convert the audience. Um, the problem is, as you will know, the majority of theatre audience, I think it's fair to say, probably don't need converting. They probably already agree with you if you're a mildly progressive playwright. So I just think that something then, it just becomes politically inert. And you think, well, what is the point to have the world reflected back to you the way that you want it to be? I think it's much more exciting to, to challenge those preconceptions and try and walk in, in the footsteps of somebody you may not always agree with. So I don't know, I did a play called Ink, which was about Rupert Murdoch. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we, we anecdotally know that people in the interval were walking out going, oh God, I think I quite like Rupert Murdoch. I quite like the sun. Um, and I think, you know, bar sales went up at the theater that, that week because people just couldn't quite tolerate it. And of course, then, what, you, <laughs> then what, what it is beholden upon you to do once you've given them a defense is that then you prosecute them in the second act and then everyone gets their say and then you leave with both points of view and it becomes a more nuanced experience and if, if theatre can't do that in an age when of social media when everything is black and white and absolute um to a such a simplistically reductive degree if you can't put people in a room for two hours in a theatre and at least unravel some of those preconceptions and just have a bit more of a mature debate then i don't know where else that you can i loved this house i loved labor of love i thought was probably even more difficult for you to remain fair um because it is you know it's not about the Tories and Labour to obvious opponents is about opponents within a party at a yeah. time when the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership was becoming a very stressed and strained place for people. And I, throughout the whole thing, was trying to think, I was thinking, this is, this is play is sort of written for me. This feels like a defence of Blairism. The main character's a Forest fan. I was like, this is an incredible treat. <laughs> As a lad from Nottingham who supports Tony Blair, this is just like... But throughout the whole thing, I was constantly thinking, how would I feel, actually, if I was on the left of the party? Would I also think I was being vindicated? And at times, I kind of felt that I would have done, that actually the play was very fair in portraying both wings, in not a sympathetic way, but... It, it, even though it was about the contentious relationships within the Labour Party, it felt like it, it, it felt like a respectful of both. And, and I don't know whether, I mean, I still came away thinking that was kind of a pro Blair play, <laughs> but I don't know whether you would agree with that or not. 
Well, all I can tell you is that that we also had people coming up to us, and I take this again as a, as a great compliment. I'm very grateful. Uh, people came up to us on the, the harder left of the party saying exactly what you said, saying <laughs> we're making our side the heroes and that side the villains. That, so obviously that speaks to human nature and the fact that we project onto stories the version of the world that we want. Um, so, we, so people heard, um, so we had Martin Freeman uh, as, the, as the Blairite MP, and Tamsin Gregg as his constituent uh, agent, um, a, a fascinating role, who was more on the, um, the Tony Benn wing of the party. And, and yes, it was really interesting. People, when people heard Martin defend in the value of, 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 of centrism, basically, centrists heard, 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 heard something that they were delighted in and Corbynites heard everything that they hate. And I think you, they said everyone was satisfied for that reason. Um, because of course, what you're doing, the joy of drama, your job is way harder, Matt. You have to <laughs> actually actually engage in an opinion and, and, and project one. As a dramatist, you have characters to do, you have characters to speak what they believe. So I'm not saying uh, what Martin Freeman said about, about, the, the, about the value of appealing to conservative voters in the South and also win elections. That's a character saying that. And it's, that's the privilege of playwriting. I can, I can get, I can get, heroes and villains to do the work for me i thought what was really powerful about setting it and obviously we're both from nottinghamshire so you know you're going to reflect that in some way and it's nice for you to be able to reflect that but i thought it was really good to make the blairite not a london guy but he's yeah. from that part of the world and, and that was my experience of when i first joined the labor party we're born at the, in the same year 1982 and i grew up in in a city nottingham so it wasn't quite the coalfield experience but it was working class labor background in, in exactly the same time was that the people that I encountered were Blairites were the most working class. And I, I think sometimes other people who create things, it's easier to make the Blairite because Tony Blair himself is a well-spoken privileged Southern bloke, even though he went to school in Scotland, it's easier to shorthand to do that. I just thought it was a really powerful thing to do to, to make the Blairite a guy from that part of the world. It, and it felt it no, rang no. more true with me, but I don't know yeah. whether that's just because it's highly personal to me. No, it was really important to me to do that. And I, I totally agree with you. It's, um, look, it, 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 all generalities are by definition false, but I, I, it's, I think it's generally true that in communities like ours, they do aim more towards the centre of the party because there is, a, there is a pragmatic necessity to coming from a deprived area where you do not have the privilege of ideology and you do not have the luxury of of politics being a kind of academic game and we would oh we'd like to get into power this time but if we can't get in the way that we want to we'd rather stay in opposition i mean that is just to most people where we're from that is utter bullshit yeah. and there is a requirement an urgent requirement to compromise to get the friggin hell into power and i think that is understood so you'll have you'd, i mean you'll have seen all across our um county where in 19 that, that's what it, it, i was writing I've forgotten all about this, gosh, memory lane, thank you for this. I, I remember the stress. We were due to open in the West End in 2017, and that was actually when we did open in the autumn, not expecting there to be an election um, early that year. And I'd written a play that began at the last election and worked back through every election. And then Theresa May, who I don't think for a second thought about the consequences on playwrights of her decision, called a snap election. And it completely changed the narrative. As you remember, this was a play about the slow decline of Labour's popular vote over a period of 10 years. 
and then they then they then they stop then Labour storm it in 2017. So I had to change the entire proposition of the play, um, except of course I really because in our constituencies in the north of Nottinghamshire, the trend went exactly the opposite direction. And if anybody, any political scientist had been paying paying attention, that they would have noticed that the, the red wall was already beginning to crumble quite significantly. And that was a trend that continued into 2019. Um, but yes, it was, a, it was a challenge to sort of reflect the new optimistic mood in the Labour Party with only about two weeks till we started rehearsing with, um, with what was a very pessimistic mood in those, in those industrial constituencies. It is incredible. And Mansfield and Ashfield are the two places I think of first in this whole context of the collapse of the Labour Party in general, but the epicentre of the miners' strike. Yeah. And obviously Mansfield went in 2015, so that was the first time where you go, oh God, this is big. Or was it 2017? I'm getting all confused now. 2017, then, 2017, yeah, Mansfield went for the first time, then, then uh, and Ashfield clung on by about 400 votes. And then finally, 2019, Ashfield went as well. Astounding. Yeah. You know, I used to work for Paddy Tipping, the MP for Sherwood, so I knew like the Mansfield and Ashfield area well. Obviously, Jeff Hoon was the former MP there. It is incredible that those places would be voting Conservative in a modern era. I mean, I'm sure you've still got friends and family there. I don't know whether, whether their politics has changed and whether, whether it was a big deal for them. It, it was huge and actually often very emotional. Like, it's, I, 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 have, I have friends whose dads were, were minors, and um, so I know from one of them, a, a, former, a former minor who for the first time ever ticked the Conservative box, um, and, and was not unaware of the significance of that sort of for him, for him personally. And these are, you know, there's a multitude of fat factors, cultural, historical, economical, that, that led gently and quietly over 20 years to that point. But, um, you know, and also for like younger voters, uh, with the, what connected communities like this to the labor movement with, with the trade unions, and now they've all gone, it, and you are working, your, your work life looks very different, often very hand to mouth, um, there's no sense of, trade, there's no sense of community uh, identity in your, in your industry. Um, uh, my mum works uh, evenings in, um, in a logistics warehouse, which were built on all the places where the mines were knocked down. And, and it's, you know, shipping is now the, a major part of, of that community. Um, and she, she, yeah, she explains it very well, but better than I would about just the feeling of um, you, you know, your job being your job, it being relatively insecure, you're not, it doesn't make you as proud as it used to, and you do not identify as a community around one central thing. Yes. And all of the stuff around the minds, whether that be adult education, culture, music, that united a, a constituency entirely around the labour movement, and that's, that's all vanished, obviously. And those places, there's something really specific about the Nottinghamshire coldfields, is you drive through miles of countryside. If you, if you drive from Nottingham to Mansfield, you go through miles of basically meadows and fields, and then all of a sudden there are just these council estates in the middle of nowhere with built around a centre of employment that died 30-odd years ago, and they're just all still there with yeah, nothing it, to do. You, you, all, the, all, the ro all the roads are pointing to something that isn't there anymore, yeah. and that must have a that being pretentious, that, that is my job, that must have some sort of spiritual, emotional consequence, hard as it would be to define. No, I agree. And of and course, you will know as well, the, you know, it's, Nottingham is impossibly complicated for its politics, historically, yeah, yeah. because of the minor strike and the, and the, the 
you, you know, Yorkshire uniformly stayed out, Wales uniformly stayed out, Nottingham was split down the middle and the majority of, of, of Nottinghamshire miners went back to work and formed the breakaway union. But not yeah. everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's hard. So, you know, you have this, yes, you have the tradition of the miner strike and of coal mining, which is traditionally very, very left wing, but it's a county that made a political decision in, in, in 1984 that, that sort of backed this decision of Margaret Thatcher. You have to, you have a, a fiscally sort of um, fiscally liberal but socially conservative uh, paradox as well. It's it's a, it's a hot mess, and I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not surprised. It's politically interesting, which I guess for me, who who seems to be the only benefactor of, of national crises, <laughs> I'm very aware. Uh, it obviously makes for for interesting writing. It's all about benefiting from national crisis. Brexit and uncivil war is superb. Um, and it's so because they're so well portrayed, the people that obviously you recognize these characters, you've met some of them, I have. And it's remarkable how accurately some of them are portrayed. Um, I watched it again the other day, and I just obviously Dominic Cummings, at the, at the time we speak, is about to deliver a press conference in a couple of hours' time, apparently. I felt that Brexit and Civil War was kind of sympathetic to him, that it kind of shows him for all his problems, as actually a, 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 almost a brooding genius. Well, um, I, think, <laughs> I, I know that a lot of people have a lot of strong opinions about that, that film and whether or not uh, it created a mythology around this man that was either completely unearned and undeserved. Um, and I mean, yeah, I, I sort of even still to this day deal with um, very sensible people who I admire sort of saying without that movie, he wouldn't have become um, uh, the, the person that he is today, even if oh, that's it, ridiculous. Of course, I think it's ridiculous. I, I would love, and I, I wang on more than anybody about the power of art, but I don't think I changed uh, Boris Johnson's decision as to who his special advisor is. Um, and if anything, I hope it. You forget again at the time he was a relatively unknown quantity to the majority of British people. So sticking a Marvel superhero in a, in a, in a film about him, I would hope the what you know a benefit is that it's more it's more possible to hold him to account now that we dragged him kicking and screaming into the light. As to whether or not it was sympathetic or unsympathetic, I, again, I'm going to be the, the arch centrist and think it was both. I think you can only, the absolute desire of a film like that on, on such a toxic issue is to create a space where an audience members from all sides can feel like gonna, they can safely enter and watch the whole thing. And if I'd just done, if I'd just done the, the remaining the remaining point of view and, and completely villainized him, then I would have lost that other half of the audience. And so what is the frigging point? So of course I want to go in his head and try and understand what he thinks he's done that's positive and then go inside the other heads of, of the remain side and say, well, this is what I think he's poisoned. And we, you know, we have for all, for all the, um, feel very defensive. Sorry. I know you you haven't even accused me of, of lionizing this, this guy, but for all the, for all the space we gave him to say, to, 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 you know, project his political philosophy and, and what he did and how he, uh, and how he won. We still had, we still also sat him opposite Craig Oliver played by Rory Kinnear in a scene where Rory basically put to him that he'd, he'd polluted the waters of British politics forever and there was no going back, which I think is, I hope, hopefully, uh, you know, a, a tough enough statement to say, to, 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 to hold him to account. But I don't know. I don't know. It's um, the fact is also Benedict did an extraordinary job of, of depicting him. I know people who, who strongly dislike him 
don't want him to be like that. They want him to be an, an idiot and a buffoon and a pastiche of a Svengali. But that is how he talks. I mean, if you read his 10,000 yes. word blogs, that is how he talks. The film is not celebrating that, endorsing that, or saying, yes, he's a genius. But that is how he behaves. And Benedict did an amazing job of representing that. It is. And we should be mature enough as audiences to see people depicted that we don't like, depicted as, because they are, human beings with yeah. elements of their character that actually we might quite admire or respect. And that... Or relate to. And, and of course, of course. And um, yes, no, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's... Um, Sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought then, but yes, I agree with you is what I'm saying. <laughs> I just thought it was really good for just reminding all of us that he's still a human being, whatever we think of him. And of course, throughout this crisis, that's, I mean, you know, when you see this crisis unfold and who knows where it ends, and by the time people listen to this, it may have taken another turn. Yeah. Do you think, well, I better get on the phone to Cumberbatch because we're going to have to do a sequel? No, I strangely don't. <laughs> I feel like that that work is done now. I mean, there were there was I briefly considered a, doing a road movie sequel uh, yesterday, um, <laughs> kind of a mix of with Nail and I going north in a car with people. But um, uh, but no, I mean, but, but Cumberbatch is interested in um, in it, we, we're sort of talking about new, new ideas of what the the, the 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 a future political drama might might be. But I think that I think that I think that story is done. Do you, do you feel now, whenever you watch the news, which I'm sure is every day, do you think, right, well, that's a good idea for a, a, a film or a play, or that's not? Like, what are the things that have happened since Brexit that you've perhaps considered turning into something? I try, I try not to have a knee-jerk reaction to stuff, because I think the most powerful political theatre and political films do have a bit of a... a, bit of a distance perspective on, on events. And I think the, the power of theatre is that it can operate on a level of metaphor. So when you set something in, you know, set something in the 1970s, the audience does the work for you. The audience knows that it has parallels to the chaos of today's climate without you having to, um, yeah, without you having to be a journalist. But a theatre can't be journalism. You, you and other people do that better than I can. So, but uh, yeah, if there was one moment, and we've all, we've all, forgotten this for obvious reasons in, in that the drama just kept being trumped by something else. But the moments in the last, um, the last couple of months of last year in Parliament, when day by day, night by night, it looked like the government might fall and the Prime Minister did fall and every day was, a, was an unprecedented this or a never before happened that, whether it is a, part, a government being held in contempt of parliament or a government losing a piece of a vote for major legislation by more numbers than had ever happened in history, or the proroguing of our parliament. Um, the image of, at that one point, it's very, it's very similar to this house, actually, in, in the sense that when you push a system that far, it, it, it moves into farce. Do you remember the image of like, John Burke having to walk to the House of Lords to begin the process of programment. And you have MPs leaning over his chair to stop him from standing up. Yes. I can't believe we've forgotten that that happened. It's an amazing that, photo, that. Extraordinary. I mean, the post, yeah, the post is already printed if I ever do it as a play. It's, it's there and ready to go. So, and then of course, the, 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 the big ideological questions, philosophical questions about whether, you know, how, how legal or illegal that was. For, for a Western, democracy, one of the oldest parliamentary democracies in the world, to be the one whereby, it, as, as deemed by a court, illegally shut down. I just, I just can't believe that that won't one day be a drama that I would want to write. 
they've all been so far, I think I'm right saying, the political one's British. Uh, oh, obviously the Trump era has created so much uh, culture and art. Do, do you think actually you'd like to have a go at an American theme for politics, whether it was Nixon or, or, or something like that, where you could kind of explore Trump through that? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I think um, I feel enough of an, I started off feeling like enough of an imposter um, tackling British politics. So I think I would have a question about a confidence issue over authenticity about not being American and whether that's my story to tell. There's plenty of great American playwrights who should probably be, be doing it. But I do, um, I, I am part, obviously mainly because of the West Wing, I, I have a huge amount of interest and romance about about that system and what it aspires to be and how so often it just falls short of being that shining, shining light on the hill, whatever it's, um, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I don't know, I'm also a big believer that the contemporary political world infuses its way into a- anything that you do anyway without it literally being about it. So I believe I did a, um, a show called Quiz on ITV over Easter about um, the coughing major scandal, which uh, on on the surface has absolutely nothing to do with uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, it's a story set 20 years ago about someone who maybe cheated on a game show. But the reason why I wrote that story is because I saw within it an opportunity to explore all of the anxieties I had about truth and post-truth and alternative facts. And, and because I don't think it is a stretch to, to draw a line between the advent of this kind of television, reality television, of which Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was a part of, um, and, the, and the merging of justice with entertainment and the blurring of boundaries between fact and fiction. You know, the, 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 the greatest greatest in quotation marks, the most famous character to come out of that culture, of course, was Donald Trump, a, a, a fictional character who, who, who was in The Apprentice hiring and firing people. And now he's in the White House and we're all living in his reality television show. And, and it's hard to know whether he's, he's he, you know, the fact that he often refers to himself so often as a, in the third party means that even he knows he's getting up every morning and playing a part. So I don't have to write about Trump doing that. I can, I can find other ways to to explore those themes in a way that is, is, is a few steps removed. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How do you deal with the ethics of people and using real people, whether they are playing a role like Trump or not? And I suppose it's an issue that David Peace had with things like the Damned United, where you're using people's names, you're getting them to say things that perhaps they didn't actually say. With Brexit and on Civil War, how careful did you have to be about the things that those characters would or wouldn't do? 
you always have to be careful. Obviously, you have to be careful from a legal point of view because you don't want to get sued. But but I also take great pride in having a moral care that I do want to be responsible. I don't. I have no desire to misrepresent anybody for my own agenda, whether that's Charles Ingram, the coughing major, or Rupert Murdoch. I, I, if we're gonna if we're going to go for these people, if we're gonna go, you did a thing, and what are the consequences of that thing? Then I then I want to represent them fairly so that we can have a proper debate. You, I mean, like very bluntly, uh, like very crudely, sorry, you just, um, it's, there are, there are lawyers who tell you what you can say and what you can't. They read your script and they go, please don't. Uh, and then you adapt it according to that. But of course, we also have to be, we have to be quite punchy. I think we have to push the line quite far. Uh, I have a sort of rule. The rule basically is if people, are, if characters are stood at the dispatch box in the House of Commons, or if they're stood in front of a camera and there's a microphone in front of them, then I have to be as close as damn it to what they said verbatim, whether that's on Hansard or YouTube. Once they close the door and they're in a private room, Dominic Cummings with Matthew Elliott, and they're talking about strategy, then, then I think they belong to me then. And I think, because I think an audience knows the game. They know I wasn't there in the room when Dominic Cummings came up with the slogan, Take Back Control. But they probably also know that I've spoken to as many people as I possibly can who were in the room. And I'm going to try and reflect that as honestly as possible. But it is not transcript. It's absolutely me. And, and my, my voice is in there. If I want it to be funny, I have to use my sense of humour. And if I want to say something about Britain, then I have to use my perspective on Britain. So, so, but audiences are sophisticated. And I think they know that. They get the game. So the meeting between Craig Oliver and... Uh, Dominic Cummings, where they're on two platforms and then they go for a drink. Did that actually happen? I'm afraid it did not actually happen. Oh, and, and, um, and have either of them said, I can't believe you made, and, made up, we went for a drink and we didn't. Uh, well, so, so it's the, it's, it's the essence. I, I, I understand also the irony and hypocrisy of having just wanged on about truth and post-truth. And, <laughs> and making stuff up. But I think, you know, what you can only do in drama is capture the essence of, of truth. So, like, fundamentally, you have to make lots of choices. The, the, the movie is two hours long, and the referendum campaign was about three months long. So I'm not going to give you a three-month movie. So no. you know I've already got to make choices. I've got to conflate six meetings about, about strategy in, in the Midlands to one meeting about strategy. And I've got to combine characters together. And, and so what you, what you want between... So that in that scene that didn't happen in the pub, what you are, what you're trying to capture is the, is the truth of um, an antagonistic relationship between two people that got quite personal. Mm -hmm. So they did meet each other, you know, they were on the, on the campaign trail, sometimes crossing events. They'd had dealings with each other in the past when Cummings was with Gove in the education department and Craig Oliver was in Downing Street with David Cameron. So you are trying to capture the essence of that relationship and the things that they felt and how much they thought about each other frequently, how to destroy each other and how to win, and use that to create a, uh, what I hope is, is a really impactful scene where you show these two people as human beings who are exhausted and, and absolutely believing in, in the wrongness of the person set up opposite them and the rightness of their, their campaign. Um, and so yeah, it's the essence of truth. That's all I can say in my defense. Well, I think that's fair enough. If they've, you know, they, they obviously met and they had exchanges. You're just setting it somewhere. It's just shorthand. It's not, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a lie or anything like that. Um, when you're creating drama out of real people and they're being depicted with their real name and their real status and things, what's your approach? Do you think 
it's helpful for you to meet them? Do you try and meet them and talk to them? Or do you think I'll talk to friends of theirs? Do you have a kind of strategy in that way? Or do you think I'll read Tim Shipman's books and the insidery accounts and that's how I'll get some of those details? Yeah, I do have strategies. Uh, so it's exactly as you say, the starting point will always be consume as much uh, publicly available information as possible in the form of memoirs and documentaries. And I would do that before I even type the letter or the email that requests to, to see people, just so I feel like I can have confidence in myself that I know a bit about this world. Then I might try and meet people who are in that person's orbit first. So if Dominic Cummings is the sun, I'll start at Pluto, which I guess is, I don't know, a young intern who did six weeks on the campaign. And then you start to sort of circle in closer and closer and closer. I probably, if, it, if, it's, a, if it's the main character of a story, I might wait until there's a draft so that, I, I, so that my questions can be incredibly, um, incredibly, I can use my time incredibly well. But I will, always, I will always let people know it's happening. And I will always, if they want to meet me, I will always say yes. And if they don't want to meet me, meet me I will understand. It's a journey of taking people with you, really, even people who may not like the end product. I think you have to be really honest and sincere with your intentions. And I think when you go and finally do meet the person, whether it's the chief whip in this house, or it's Dominic Cummings in Brexit, or it's Rupert Murdoch in Inc., I think you, you absolutely have to be prepared to delete a significant amount of your, your script. You can't go in there hoping that they will just confirm the thing that you've already done, because people will sniff that out in an instant. They, they sniff out that insincerity. If you go in absolutely committed to listen and to hear what they're saying, and that that might mean you're going to have a lot of late nights coming up, then you have to just do it and accept it. But what an amazing thrill, not just to be able to be the person that's telling these stories. You know, your contribution to the public realm in, in, in making these things entertaining and informative is huge. But then you're also getting to sit with those people yourself. You know, you're not just imagining them and, and portraying them in a way. Did you meet with Rupert Murdoch then? No, uh, he came to see the West End version of Inc. And wow. We, yeah. And, um, did and he like we, it? He didn't really tell me. He did like, <laughs> I mean, he said he liked, um, there were moments he referred to which he really liked. There was a sequence we did in the play which showed the audience, it was a beautiful sequence, nothing to do with me, by our, by our design team, where we replicated the hot metal process of how you, how you used to make a paper on Fleet Street. And it's basically Lord of the Rings. There's lots of people with mallets and there's like red hot molten lava pouring everywhere. Um, I remember that he said he, he, um, he enjoyed seeing that. And that was interesting because given that one of his legacies is that he destroyed all that, and actively, actively, actively destroy that traditional process and, do, and, and move his businesses out to Wapping and, and, and computerize everything. So it was interesting that, he, that I saw in his eyes a sort of a romance for the, for the thing that he annihilated. Um, and look, I also go back and forth on this and people um, express strong opinions and feelings to me about it. So we, so we did speak to him and then he came to see it again when we took the show to New York. And I remember there was, um, it was noted that he came to see it by some, by some newspapers. The New York Times ran a story where, which showed that he came to see it. And the absolutely valid response from a lot of the, the theatre community in New York was to, was to question whether or not that was correct and whether or not, therefore, I was doing my job if, 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 it, if that man felt comfortable coming and spending two hours in our, in our company. And all I would say again is that obviously I completely recognize that, but I, it was a deliberate choice 
as we've talked about previously, it was a deliberate choice to write a kind of play where uh, both the New York Times readers and the Fox News viewers felt they could come and sit and both get a hearing, but also learn something new about the other person's opinion. So I was pleased and dare I say proud that we as a team managed to create a show where Rupert Murdoch got to go and sit and enjoy seeing a version of his younger self explaining his philosophy for the media, but then had to sit there listening to characters saying You've, you, you, your toxic influence on the news has been extraordinary and you've destroyed lives. He had to sit there and listen to that. And he would never have done that had he not done the other thing first. And I also, I just, what I just, look, the fact is, the Sun is the most popular paper in Britain, so we need to ask questions about why. Why do people buy it? You might not buy it, I might not, but there's obviously something in the appeal to millions of readers that is worth interrogating, that is worth not just dismissing out of hand. Um, so yes, anyway, so that's, so that's you, you, but of course, I mean, I absolutely did not sit in the audience the night that Rupert Murdoch signed watched my play. I went to a bar and had lots of whiskeys. <laughs> because the temptation, you'd just be watching him throughout the whole thing. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think those nights, audiences can see him there as well. Yeah. So it's completely wow. changed. Oh, it's, an, it's a different show whenever people are, are in, because an audience just like, whenever it's something, you know, someone, a character crit criticizes that him, an audience just immediately looks to the back of his head and tries to work out what he's thinking. It completely sort of ruins the experience actually, but no, there we go. And did he, did he, do you know, did he sit at the back? Did he sit at the front? I know in the West End he sat in the uh, upper circle, so not in the stalls, okay. and probably near the aisle in case he had to make a run for it. And, uh, and I think he brought, some, he brought um, uh, one of his daughters actually, so I didn't he took her to see it. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I was really, I was just, I was grateful that a lot of the, um, well, a lot of Fleet Street came to see it actually, which was great, and some of those uh, worked for the Sun. And what you, what you find is the joy of theatre is that it's a constant evolving conversation. It's not that you, not like a film where you lock it, you screen it, and then really you have no idea what people, people think and it's finished forever. A, a play evolves constantly because people come and they meet the actors and they talk and you learn a bit more and you, there's a chance to rewrite stuff if you, if you want to rewrite it. So I rewrote this house constantly as, as politicians came to see it and told me a new story. Um, I've told this story a lot of times on conversations about this house, so forgive me if you've heard it, but it's often not the way, it's, it's often not, it's often not um, what you think it will be. So when Ann Taylor saw the show, uh, the, the, the young junior whip, um, there's, a, there's a conversation towards the end of the play where they are discussing whether or not to bring down this sick MP, Alf Broughton, for the very famous vote of no confidence, because there's only, there's only about one vote in it, and this is about the survival of the government. And he, he's, he's really ill and they're quite worried that he might die on the way. And so they have a conversation about the cost benefit analysis of taking the risk. And I tried to be really fair and I tried to show the whips as human beings going, yeah, but we can't risk this guy's life. We just can't. And Ann Taylor came to see, I think, sort of the third preview. So we hadn't officially opened to the press yet. And she said to me afterwards, you were far too nice to me. You were far too nice to me there. At that moment, at that time, uh, I said, uh, well, the line that she said was when, when someone said, we cannot bring him down, he'll die. She said, well, he'll die happy. And she, she absolutely committed to risking, at the time, saying, I think it's worth risking this guy's life for the government to survive. And the empathetic version of that is also that she 
she knew how much it meant to the MP that the MP wanted to risk his life for the Labour Party. But she was very brutal about it. And she said, don't be, take the gloves off. I said some, I said some questionable shit. So, um, so we put that line in the next Brilliant. night and it always, it always got a gasp. So it's not always that people will come and go, I want you to paint me as more of a hero. People are sophisticated and sometimes they'll go, no, I didn't, I didn't behave perfectly all the time. So you can rewrite it as you go, should you choose. Yeah. I mean, surely you're not going to watch the play every night. Once it opens, how often do you go and watch a, a play of yours? You, you like to check in. I mean, not just because actors can be mischievous and they get confident as, as they get more laughs and, and maybe you just want to check that the, the scale of the performance is, is what you rehearse. <laughs> um, but um, but be, because you do, it's, you do want to be part of that conversation. It's, it's such a privilege and a joy to know that across town somewhere, a thousand people are watching your show and you do, you do want to engage with it. So yeah, a couple of times, a couple, couple, couple of times, maybe once, once a week or once every two weeks, You'll, you'll go and you'll, you'll, you just want to hear the audience, see how it's feeling. And especially if people are coming, if politicians are crossing the river as they did every night, you want to use the opportunity to, to say hi, get that card, get that email address and, uh, and keep them for future plays. Of course. I mean, did anyone come and not like it? Did any politician say, actually, not, not just about their own portrayal, but just in general, where they say, it's not my cup of tea? My guess would be most of them would love it, regardless of what side they're on. I think they all did. I'm t- I think um, we had one one discussion began around whether or not we'd accurately re- reflected um, how how many women were in that parliament. It was obviously a very male parliament, um, but uh, I think I think it was Edwina Curry who you, who you just had on. I think yeah. she she wrote us a letter saying. Um, Damn it! I'm going to misrepresent it. She either wrote us a letter saying. You, you made it look like there were too many women in parliament and that's unhelpful because it was a huge fight to increase representation in that way. Or you didn't show enough. And we had, we had, we had letters coming in from MPs at the time saying both. Um, you overestimated or underestimated the role of women in that parliament. Um, so we didn't quite know what to do with that information given that we were getting conflicting advice. But, but that, was, that was an issue about, rep- about representation and whether or not we got it helpfully right. You were on question time the other week. <laughs> did you wonder about doing it or not yeah i i've i i've i've, I've um so it's, the requests have been made in the past and i've always resisted it because because of all the things you could probably imagine you know the things that everybody would feel uh imposter syndrome why why is my opinion on uh on inflation any more valuable than anybody else's do I really want to put myself through um, through what would be probably on, on a, a, a not very nice night on my social media feed? Uh, I, do, I, I do really protectively try to maintain a balance so that an audience can come and enjoy my work without knowing necessarily what I think about things. And I, I could never sort of reconcile how I could go on a show like that for an hour and not slightly give away what I thought. But ultimately, the reason why I went on on Thursday was because uh, they, they, they said we need to start talking about theatre and arts funding. And it felt like too good an opportunity to not try and get that into the, into the public domain. So I said yes. And I cannot tell you, I'm not just saying this, I cannot tell you how much I was cacking myself <laughs> going on there. 
I tried to prepare as much as I could. But when I heard, I think because of the way, because of the nature of the production is probably quite different as well. It's a very small skeleton crew. You don't get any makeup or talk before you just go and you sit in your chair and your chair is very far removed from everybody else. So I, when I sat down, I didn't feel completely prepared. And when I heard the theme music, which I've heard so many times, my head just emptied of every thought <laughs> I've ever had. And for the first, first four minutes while other people were talking, I could not summon a single thought. Um, and then thankfully, because I was given a bit of time before I had to start trying to save theatre, that it was um, that I, I got into my stride a bit. But it's interesting. I mean, you must have a, you must have a perspective on it as well. I think you can learn. You can learn to get better at that stuff. But I don't know how you'd learn without doing it and sometimes doing it badly. Well, I thought you were brilliant on it. And I was really pleased you did it. And I think it's the right decision. I think the more people like you that go on the better I mean when I've done it I don't know I think it's when you do it with a live audience it's more combative definitely yeah, so I think cool. that that would maybe change the, the the experience a little bit but I think people with expertise should be on the show that you have an exceptional experience in the field and you care about the the forum you know you you care about politics and how it's represented so I thought it was really important that you went on there mm-hmm. um but I know, that, I know that so many people are so scared of doing it. I think when you do it, actually, there's a, it demystifies it a bit. It's just five people talking politics regardless of, um, you know, their status or, 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 or whatever. Yeah. But you know what you're talking about. And that's the crucial thing is that it has to be a forum where informed people with experience share that experience with an audience who don't know what it's like to be a creative and put on shows and the importance of that. And, and to hear that experience, I think, is really important. Rather than listening to a minister who doesn't have experience. Sure. It's really important for actual experienced people to, to share that with an audience. But I just wondered if, um, I think a lot of people get asked, who aren't politicians, probably think, fuck that. What I, was your I, social media like on the night? Well, do you know what? It was, it was perfectly lovely, which I was very pleased about. I do think, I think you're right, there's something about the audience. I, 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 I think ultimately the audience should come back because it probably should be... Um, you probably should be a bit of a blood sport because it's, you know, the whole point of that show is, is it puts real people inches away from the people making their decisions and they get a platform. But um, because of the slightly, the, the format at the moment, you find yourself arriving at more consensus and being a bit more reasonable when you are trying to avoid um, populist applause lines. So I think because of the quality of that debate, people were more reasonable towards it. But I have to say, of course, I imagined that, bringing up arts funding uh, during a global pandemic might, might flush out some, some quite strong responses. And I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I'm also a human being who really wants the NHS to survive and, and cares about the people that I love not getting infected. And those are the most important things. It's just, there's just no option anymore to start talking about these industries that um, once we do finally reopen, can play their role in, in, in revitalizing the economy, but it's, we are only days and weeks away from that becoming impossible because these, these buildings are gonna to start to go insolvent, so we have to start talking about it. So to my surprise, yes, I couldn't actually believe that. Turns out people actually really like theatres, which is, which is really nice. And, and we, got a lot of, we got a lot of support, um, so we will see. I wonder whether for you it was a, an extra surreal experience because you create drama out of political set pieces and there you are as yourself appearing on one was there any part of you that thought i'm now 
entering the world that I've been shining a light on. No, I didn't think about that. And I'm glad I didn't think about that. <laughs> that would have pushed out another thought from my head. But it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And for that, for that very reason, I am, there's, there's, there's zero part of me that wants to be a, a, a political pundit. I don't, I, I have no desire to be in the conversation. I want to be watching the conversation so that I can reflect it back uh, in, in the form of plays and TV dramas. And there is a huge joy to, to being able to sit anonymously at the back of the theatre and hand over your work and just and just be amongst people listening to their reactions towards it. So I, there's, I, I, I don't think you'll be seeing me do too much of it, but uh, in certain emergency cages, I'm, I'm happy to be, to be wheeled out. I wonder if there's an alternative universe where you grow up in the time that you grew up in and then maybe you don't end up becoming a playwright or maybe you do become a playwright, but you're not and a screenwriter, but you're not necessarily doing political stuff. And then you become more political and actually stand for parliament. Is there a world in which, or maybe after you've done all this, you've still got years left. Is there a part of you that thinks, actually, I, I would get involved. I, I might stand for parliament at some point. Yeah, sometimes. I, 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 I don't think it will be as much fun as writing films uh, or doing plays. But fun is not always the point in life, is it? And I, I, have, a, I have a possibly sentimental view still. Of, of public service and of, and of standing and representing your community being a thing that we should all sort of aspire to do, whether whether that's teachers or nurses or postmen or anybody. And um, I, I, I think it's obviously, and we tried to talk about this in, in the play Labour of Love a little bit, set in a constituency office whereby you, you show the daily experience of what it's like to be a member of parliament at the moment. And I think we can all agree that it's not great right now uh, that we have, we have, tips the balance of accountability into, into, into often violent um, attacks and, and that's not acceptable. So I don't know how we'll convince good people to, to sacrifice themselves on the altar of that horribleness. Um, so yeah, that worries me. I don't know why any good people, not to say I'm a good person, but why anyone of uh, any merit would want to stand at the moment because we, we, we just don't treat them well enough. You got an OBE at the start of the year and I just wonder, Firstly, it must have been such a proud moment. But given that you're someone who goes into Westminster and, and lodges it all in your mind and stores it for future drama, perhaps, when you're then going to the palace on a day like that, do you think, I could do a... I mean, obviously, there's the crowns out there. But do you think, I could do a play about the monarchy? I do sometimes think that. Well, I, did, I actually contributed an episode to The Crown. I wrote one in series three about um, Charles... Again, it sounds like a very unexciting drama. It was an episode where Prince Charles had to learn Welsh, basically, so that he could do his uh, investiture speech in Carnarvon Castle. But underneath that was a fascinating story about his relationship with his teacher. His teacher was um, a Republican and the deputy leader applied Cymru. So he sat opposite somebody who doesn't want him to exist, trying to learn vowel sounds that don't make any sense in his mouth. And I, uh, I loved doing that episode. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, the, the OBE thing was, of course, lovely, and nobody ever will believe this because it always sounds like a lie. But I, I, I accepted it um, because I thought mainly to make my mum cry, uh, which she did so in a nice did. way. In a nice way, yeah. Not some, for loads of bad reasons, but this was a good one. And um, and coming from where we come from, Matt, and and coming from a comprehensive school at a difficult time, I, I, I it was a genuine attempt to sort of to sort of be able to go back to these places and say it's you know people from our back neck of the woods can 
can be celebrated sometimes in, in these ways. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. I haven't been, because of course I can't. Oh, man. They're absolutely not going to, uh, for some weird reason, they don't want the Queen to be surrounded by hundreds of people at the moment. So, so I'm yet to officially get it. So you haven't got the little box with the medal in it yet? Uh, yeah. So I wonder who then... I was going to ask you about which royal had done it, but you don't know yet. Or do you know? Nope. They don't tell you who's going to do it. Well, at least I don't think they do. So that was going to be in June. And um, for, you know, I agree with this decision. They are cancelling it and, um, and we'll see when it happens. But yeah. And we will, will no one think of the OBEs, the, the, no, real, no. the real tragedy of this crisis. People should clap on Wednesdays for the OBEs. <laughs> Thursday for the nurses. I, can't, I mean, there, there must, there's so many things you've achieved that must make you so proud, but that, that is an honour that so few people will ever have bestowed upon them. It must, it must feel particularly special. It was, it, was, it was a massive surprise. I know everyone always says that, but, you know, I didn't expect that letter to come. And, um, uh, and I, had, I, had the, I had the brief moment, because I'm a political playwright, and I'm, I want to always hold these people to account. Uh, but, yes, it was um, to be able to go home and tell my family that Christmas was a, was a, was a really special thing. So how do you find out? You get a letter through the post. And that's yeah. the first you've oh, heard I, of it. Oh, I don't know if we're meant to talk about it. They're going to take oh. it off, aren't they? Because I, I spoke to you. Um, yes, you get a letter from the, um, uh, from the, who is it? Who sends it? It's like the cabinet office, someone like, yeah. And, uh, and then you just get a form. It says accept or not accept. And you've definitely sent that back. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> definitely sent that back, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Well, I mean... Uh, we are all so excited to see what you'll create next. Um, not just politics, but quiz was great. But the thought, there's something really exciting about knowing that there's someone out there that whatever happens in the next five or 10 years will be creating something that will be highly entertaining and informative about it. So whatever you choose to do next, you know, the, I just think people are so excited about what your next project is. I mean, do you, um, do you still want to keep doing political stuff? Without a doubt, and it's I can't imagine ever not. I just I think I just think there's so there are so many so many worlds of, uh, of politics, so many arenas, so many people that are worthy of exploring. Um, and it's a story because it's a story that never stops generating content. Uh, I just don't think I'd ever want to spend my time, given that you know I won't be able to do this forever, probably, and rightly so. Some of the some of the young whippersnappers will be following me in my wake. So while I, while I have the great privilege of being allowed to put plays on stage and screen, I just want to use that opportunity to do what feels like the most important conversations that we can, we can find to have. So, yeah. And this house that we mentioned is available to stream on Thursday the 28th? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and they, they stay online for a week. But um, to, try and, to try and replicate what is the most joyous uh, part of the theatre-going experience, we, the, the National Theatre try and encourage people to watch at the same time. And clap along if you feel like you need. So that's seven o'clock on, on, on Thursday. And, um, and they've been going really well. They've been getting millions of viewers. And sometimes people, we know anecdotally, people try and dress up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to try and encourage people to, because it's the 1970s. And if you remember on the, in the play, we replicated different parts of the House of Commons on stage. And we built the Strangers Bar on yeah. stage. It would open in the interval. So audience members could come onto the stage and buy a 1970s pint. And we actually, we actually brewed our own 1970s ale. To, to right. So if people want to make a 1970s cocktail, we will be encouraging them to do that as well. And are these free to watch? Yep, entirely free. That's and incredible. Right, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the um, more wonderful and moving uh, consequences of 
the horrible lockdown is that, yeah, it's what we all know the problems of sometimes getting people into the theatre, whether that's financially or even just psychologically, people not thinking it's for them. And I want it to be for absolutely everybody. So the joy of being able to beam for absolutely free, these, these great plays, um, uh, which I'm privileged to be a part of, is, is wonderful. It's joyous. It's great. Well, I'm sure people who listen to this will all be watching on Thursday night. James, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Well, there you go, James Graham. Wasn't it brilliant to, to get that insight into his upbringing and perhaps the influence that's had on his sort of politics or the way he wants to tell political stories, as well as his approach to how you represent real people on stage and on screen. And how's this for spooky? Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Think of some of the people we just mentioned. I opened up the email inbox today. There's an email in there from Laura who says, I'd love to nominate as a guest Baroness Ann Taylor, the whip that James Graham just talked about. So there you go, Faye. I don't often reveal who people are suggesting I get on, but that would be a great guest to follow on, I think. So I should be getting in touch with Ann Taylor to ask her, um, whether to uh, come on or not. Hopefully she will say yes. I've got some great guests lined up. It was brilliant talking to James. Um, because I think it is as well, you know, and I've said this before, I am mindful that um, I don't want every show made during this lockdown or during the duration of this crisis to be about coronavirus because then I think you can get coronavirus news from elsewhere. And obviously I would interview people in a different way and, and all the rest of it. But I... I want to be talking about other politics as well and just broadening the net a bit and talking to people who... James Graham's work is political, even if he's not a politician. I just thought it was really interesting to get him on. So I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can watch This House on the National Theatre's YouTube channel from tomorrow night, Thursday the 28th of May. And again, if you're listening to this after that, it will be available on their YouTube channel. Thank you very much for downloading. Do tell other people about it. Thank you so much to those of you that have left iTunes reviews. <laughs> it must do your head in me constantly asking, but it helps. I wouldn't ask if it didn't matter. So take care, stay safe, stay sane and as happy as you can, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Right.